This is Dean Cantu, host of Future Insight Podcast. In this next episode, I interview Dr. Arnold Glass, professor of psychology at Rutgers University. This interview took place on January 26, 2021. I want to welcome you to this episode of Future Insight. Uh, it is, is my pleasure to introduce you to uh, today's guest, uh, Professor Arnold Glass at uh, Rutgers University. Uh, and uh, Professor Glass is going to talk a little bit about his research, which we feel is uh, something of interest, particularly to our listeners. So, uh, so again, welcome, uh, Professor Glass, to Future Insight. Thank you so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, if you would, please uh, help our listeners uh, uh, provide sort of a context, if you will, uh, relative to your experience uh, and, uh, and to uh, uh, your academic background as well. And then what we'll do here towards the latter part of the, uh, of the podcast, we'll, we'll kind of narrow down the focus and talk about two particular studies uh, that you've been engaged in that you published recently in Educational Psychology that I think uh, are definitely germane to the focus of future insights. So again, if you could just give us a little bit of, of, uh, of uh, background uh, in terms of your, your academics. Okay, so I've taught at the college level courses such as cognitive psychology and learning and memory and human memory um, since 1975. And what I study is human learning and memory. So I always, I thought from the day I first began teaching that I had a special obligation above and beyond other teachers to make my course um, as useful to my students as possible because they studied all kinds of subjects, but I actually studied how humans learn. So if anyone could design a course where students learned a lot, it, it should be me. And so I felt uh, an obligation to take what I was telling them was true and apply it as much as possible to actual classroom instruction. I made a very sincere effort to do that from, from the beginning of my teaching days, which I think was to an extent uh, appreciated by the students. However, I really failed and I realized that it wasn't my fault because there was a lot of laboratory findings which I thought were true, where there was no easy way to apply those findings to classroom instruction. I realized that technology wasn't there to do in the classroom what we could do in the laboratory. Um, when, you know, when I began to teach, the um, second highest level of technology you had in the classroom was, was a blackboard and chalk. Right. Highest was like showing some kind of video, uh, well, not video, some kind of 16 millimeter film from a projector, and that was it. And if you didn't do that, you had Blackboard, that was it. There was no other um, instructional technology to use. And that limited what you could actually do in, in, in a classroom. So for decades, I fantasized about what I would do if I actually have the technology to take what I knew was true from the laboratory and move it into the classroom. And then in this century, that technology arrived. It arrived 
in the form of personal response systems, clickers students could use so they could respond right away to a question I asked in class, I get everyone's response. And it, it arrived in the form of online course platforms where they could do their homework and I could give them all kinds of materials. And furthermore, I could track their progress in, in studying those materials and answering questions about this. So first I could, I had much, I had to suddenly had the same kind of control over classroom instruction that I did in the laboratory. I could know what my students were, were studying at any given moment, and I could record what they knew at any given moment. I could just ask them a question and get, get an answer. So um, I decided that I was good right from the beginning, I was going to take advantage of the new technologies. I felt very confident from what I had in the laboratory that I could do the following. My, my fantasy was, uh, and I, I've had it on my syllabus now for more than 20 years, uh, if you just do everything I say, don't worry about anything else, you'll do a set of exercises. At the end of the course, you'll learn so much that on the final exam, you'll get around the 90% and you'll probably end up with an A or B plus because you've learned everything because the exercises I'm giving you from years of laboratory research will teach you the material. That was the goal. Just do what I say and you'll, you'll, you'll do fine. And um, what I was relying on was um, a well-known laboratory, in fact, uh, known them for nearly 100 years, which has, an, uh, has two versions, the generation effect, and particularly in academics, is the testing effect. And what this effect is, is that if you ask someone um, to generate an answer, right, then they remember the whole action of generating it, which means they remember the answer that they give, right? So, so asking people to generate something, to do something, is, is, is as good an instructional methodology as you can find. How this relates is what the testing effect is. Um, this was discovered quite, as uh, I said, say now over 100 years ago, that suppose you had a page of text on any topic and you want someone to learn it. One procedure, the control procedure, you give it to them and say, I want you to learn this and you have as much time as you want to study it over and over and over and over again. The other version is you give it to them, they read it once, and then you ask them a question about it. Now, a minute after you perform this task, uh, people will remember things equally well, whether they've studied it over and over again, or you've asked them a question. In fact, sometimes they even remember it a little better if they've studied it over and over. However, a week later, there's no comparison. People always remember it better if you ask them a question about it, regardless of how much time they spend studying, reading over. And that's the testament that. If you really want someone to remember something or learn material, ask them lots of questions. And you have to know, though, that the testing effect is not an immediate effect. The longer the interval over which you come back and you test them again, the stronger the effect becomes. So you don't expect it right away, maybe not even the next day, but you certainly get it a week later and after that, a stronger effect. 
So my whole goal here was to ask students a lot of questions. For me, the testing is not primarily an assessment tool, but of course it is an assessment tool. For me, it was from the very beginning, it was an instructional methodology, indeed the instructional methodology. Keep asking students a lot of questions and they'll learn the material. Now there's another, there's another well-established laboratory um, which is the distinction between um, massed versus distributed or also called spaced learning. And that's the following. If you, um, show, if you ask someone to remember something um, and you show it to them and you ask them to remember it, and then you show it to them a few seconds later and ask them to remember it, that's no, but you don't have any better memory of it than if you only showed it to them once usually. That's, that's masked presentation, showing someone something twice in a row. But suppose you show it to them once and then you show them a whole bunch of other stuff and then you show it to them again. Okay? Now what happens, your memory is better for this thing because you didn't show it to them twice in a row. There was a delayed interval. That's spaced presentation presents a much stronger memory. And the same thing uh, works in terms of, um, of, of you trying to learn it for yourself. Um, one of the things that children learn when they're learning how to rehearse is it's not, if you want to remember the words um, car, tree, and house, you don't remember them better if you go car, 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 tree, 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 house, house, house. You go car, tree, house, car, tree, house, car, tree, house. That is, you distribute your rehearsals over the words. So you first do one, then you do another, then another, then come back to the first. And that's the way you actually learn something, by distributing rehearsals over time, and not just rehearsals over again. Um, so, you, so I had these two strong effects. One was the testing effect. One was the great advantage of distributed rehearsal which I was going to implement to make it much easier for my students to learn everything in um, the course, in the course I taught. And um, um, I was confident partly because you might, because in the last century, there was some very interesting well-thought research in which people started with the idea, well, we have some students who do better in school and some who do not so well. And probably the difference is that the really good students use really good strategies after learning, and which they hit upon. And then students don't do quite as well, don't have quite so good strategies. But actually, when they studied students, um, they found that um, even really good students um, um, succeed through extra effort despite the strategies that they're using, which they believe in intensively, but actually are not actually improving um, learning. And one of the fundamental things which, which makes people do extra study than they have to is that even though there's great advantage and in terms of long-term retention of distributed or space practice over mass practice, everyone has a huge tendency to engage in mass practice, which basically means there's very little attention to the study materials until 12 hours before the exam, then the night before um, students study very hard for the exam, 
which means the next day they do well on the exam. So mass practice does work. It'll create a very strong memory for 24 hours, even up to a week. But what they don't realize is that if you go out a week beyond the exam, then what happens is um, a great deal of what they knew on the day of the exam, they, they've forgotten. <laughs> because that's how mass practice works. It works, it, it creates a very short-term memory for up to which begs in the next week, which means they learn a whole bunch of stuff for the first exam, they learn a whole bunch of stuff for the second exam, they learn a whole bunch of stuff for the third exam, and when it comes to the final, they're close to where they started and they have to learn all of that stuff over again. It's not cumulative. They don't remember all that seven exams and they learn it all over again. That's a very inefficient way of, uh, of learning. And one of the great advantages I had in my course from the very beginning where I had a course platform, when I gave them questions that they had to answer on the material, I gave them very narrow time windows on when they could um, answer those questions. And so if they wanted to do well on the exam, they would, well, they went through well on the course, they would answer the questions when I asked them. But what I did is I distributed the questions. I distributed the questions along over time intervals that would be optimal for long-term retention. And because I did that, I knew that once my students learned the material for the first exam, because I had forced them to learn a little bit of material each day, each week, moving up to the exam day. So by the time the um, the uh, exam came, they really didn't even have to engage in cramming the night before. They already knew it all. Um, then what happened is they would actually just automatically remember the material for the final with no additional study. So they so they do well. Then also, and these two techniques. Um, as I anticipated, um, they worked very well. It wasn't like the, I, the very first time I used them, they worked perfectly, but like any other new tool, as I expected, um, as I applied to the classroom, each, each time I taught the course, I got better and better. I refined the intervals, I refined the questions on the basis of what happened previous semester. So over five years, I had this nice, very satisfying increase in, in performance. The first time I did the course, this, the students taking my very difficult final exams, they got about 66% correct, but then 75 and then 79 and then 85 and then 89. They're almost up to where I assumed they could, I, I could get them all. I assumed that if everyone did what I told them to do, I'd have 90% of students getting 90 or percent or better on the final exam. They're definitely moving that direction for a good five or six years. But then what happened is that um, suddenly improvements stalled. And not only did improvements stall, I now had this huge amount of data from year to year, so I could be very confident about my conclusions. Uh, performance started to decline. Right? And when performance started to decline, now I knew something else was going on extraneous to what I thought was going on. Right? And the concept of compliance entered into um, my worldview of instruction for the first time. And, um, and the first factor that I noticed was that when I had begun to do this, 
just before the age of um, cheap, widely distributed smartphones, which now seem like to, the, to people younger than me, they seem they've already existed. I can remember when when, when they were first introduced. I, so and I can remember it used to be when when I stood before the class, um, students basically had two options. They would either pay attention to what I was doing, and no one had a phone, or they would sleep. And I mean, sleep was an option that some of them took, but uh, most of them actually were not asleep. And furthermore, the people sleeping never actually disturbed the students who, who, who were trying to pay attention. And so everything I built into the lectures from the question answering, asking to, um, and to, to carefully giving them uh, bits of material that were built on each other, it was effective in them learning the material. Um, but now what happened is I have to deal with another thing that was going on in the classroom, which is that when I looked out on the class, the class was no longer just paying attention to me. They were dividing their attention between me and something else, either their cell phone or their tablet or their laptop. There was something of interest on an electronic device, whether it was movie, whether it was social interaction with someone was playing a game. And that's what they were devoting their attention to. And then dividing that between that and, and whatever I was saying. Now I understood that you that humans can do this. We do it all the time. So they didn't eat. Of course, what happened is social convention changed. And there was a time when I was younger when, when someone doing that in a classroom would have been considered, even if there are a thousand people in the room, as so incredibly rude. Okay. That the instructor would have stopped them and said, if you don't want to pay attention to me, you can leave. Okay. But we can leave aside the social convention aspect of this changing. Okay? The real thing that had me concerned about this is what they couldn't be aware of was, again, a very well-known laboratory phenomenon, which is that you can divide attention. So all of them who were dividing attention between me and the uh, whatever else they were doing, they were hearing what I said to an extent. If I asked them an immediate question about the last thing I said, they, they, would, they would still get correct. But, the, but you still pay a cost for, for divided attention. And one of the costs you pay for divided attention, the one that was important in this circumstance, is that you um, eliminate the possibility of long-term retention of what's going on. You know, remember things in the minute, but you don't remember things down the, uh, you know, a week later of what was going on when you divide attention just the way that my students were at that moment dividing attention in the classroom. Now, for an enormous number of situations, this is fine. If you're driving home and you're talking to a passenger next to you or something, then okay, you're dividing attention. So that means you have less detailed memory of either the trip home or the conversation. But who cares? Neither of these are things you actually want to remember your whole life. And you can go all kinds of things all day long where we divide attention with a cost where you're not going to remember this in detail forever is no cost at all. Okay? And then you try and think, well, where is a case where, where there really is a big cost to not remembering um, what's going on that up, that um, instant? And the one you can come up with is sitting in a classroom. 
that's the one time when you actually do want to remember what's happening. And that's your whole reason for being there. You're not going to remember what's happening in the classroom. Why did you even show up? The whole point is you up is so you're going to do better on the exam. So I, so I realized the students work actually without awareness. We're, we're eliminating the whole point of being there by, by defining their attention. But I would not be... Um, so bold or reckless to simply tell them this, unless I knew this for a fact rather than, than speculating. And so I decided to do a, a world-controlled experiment to determine whether this, in fact, what was going on. And that's what I did. Um, I teach exactly the same course, two sections of it back to back in the same room. So students come in to take the course, they leave, the other students come in. What I did, I had proctors there, is that for half of the lectures, um, the students could do what they always did, and we monitored them. And um, when they could do what they um, always did, then most of them were looking at their cell phone or their laptop or their tablet during the class. But for the other half of the lectures, they were forbidden to do any of it. They could just pay attention to me when all their devices had been Away. And then the question was, well, how would they do on questions that I asked them in the classroom? And how would they do on the first exam, the second exam, and the third exam, and the final exam? And the results were comfortingly exactly what you would got in the laboratory, which is that... Um, Students could divide attention in class, so they did as well on the questions I asked them right then in class, whether they were dividing attention or not. However, if you looked at performance on the first exam or the second exam or the third exam and on the final, now you could look on at how well they did on questions when they were dividing attention in class versus questions then they were not allowed to divide attention in class and see whether there was a difference in their performance. Right. Was a difference in performance. There was a difference in performance of uh, uh, um, five percent better correct uh, for the questions for which they were not permitted to um, pay attention to anyone other than me in class. Okay. Now, five percent is the difference between at least half a letter grade and at some levels a whole letter grade. So if you say five percent, you say, well, what's the big deal? Well, if you care about whether you get an A or a B, then it's a big deal. If you don't care at all, then you can go ahead and you can divide attention. But I was well aware that a substantial number of students, not all of them, did care, okay? Right. So, and therefore, they should be aware of that potential cost of what they were doing was um, reducing their letter grades. So the results you know, were, were clear. I wrote them up and published. I've decided no one has ever challenged those, those findings since they here. Right? Um, and I wouldn't expect them to be, to be challenged. I mean, it was, you know, I had a large number of students. It was very well controlled experiment. Um, so I think we, and, and it's consistent, but most important, it's consistent with everything we've known about learning for about 120 years now. So it astounding. I mean, <laughs> results that didn't hold up now. So we, so now when students come in, I give them a copy of the study. I explain to them the significance. So 
at least if whatever they do, they, 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 they're doing it with their own and personal informed consent. That's right. I don't care enough, and this is what I'm, I'm, I'm going to do. Um, that they're not going into this and, and having a consequence, which, which there's no way they can get to fully inform them about what are the consequences of their own actions. So I completed that study, but then what happened is when I analyzed my data carefully, I now had data for 10, 11 years on performance. It did not fully account for the um, finding, for the decline in student performance. It certainly part of it, but it didn't account for, for, for the whole thing. So then the question was, um, well, where is the, um, where is the rest of the decline coming from? Right. And now again, I had this, uh, what I had actually done all these years I created question sets of four, five, six questions, which were closely related. So um, the same fact statement or principle um, um, was really was always the answer to all of the questions. Right? You can, yes, you know, you can you can start with one statement that's true, but you can ask different versions of the question. Sometimes they're very similar. Sometimes they're less similar. Um, sometimes the questions are quite a bit different because you're, you're applying some some equation, some theorem. But basically, it's the one thing if you know you're going to get all of these things correct. So if you put them one right next to each other and the person got the first one correct, then they get them all correct. Then it's obvious. Right? So I had these question sets uh, created and students would always get, the, uh, at a minimum, students would get the first one question from the set um, as a pre-class question. That is, before they come to class, they'd have a reading assignment compared to the lecture, and then they would have a question based on the reading, uh, uh, which would be the first question of the set. And then the second version from the question set to get in class, I would go over the same material class, and then I would ask them the second question from the set. And then the third one would be a week later um, as a homework question. Uh, they're both the pre-class and the homework questions are done on the course platform online, so I have, have a record of them answering the question, what they answered and when they answered it. And then the fourth version of the question appears on the unit exam. And finally, the fifth version of the question appears on the final exam. So now um, what I would expect to happen, again, based on both common sense, but 120 years of even more, 140 years of studying learning, is you expect that every time the probability of getting the correct answer goes up. Right, I never learned it the first time um, after just reading about. But these are all college students, and they want to do well. So you expect that uh, either the second, third, or fourth time they're going to get the answer. So every time you expect the problem, getting the answer correctly is going to go up, 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 up. Right. And initially, if you go back the first time I did this and had the data, which was two thousand and eight. Um, I get that pattern for 95% of the students, right? That is, uh, every time they, um, 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 for each successive version of the question, there's a higher probability of getting it correct. So they're learning the answer. Yes. Right. 
start out at 55 to 60 percent correct but virtually all the questions by the time they come to the final exam they're at 90 percent or better which is what i would expect and and, and what i get you know they, you don't have to be a, um, a brilliant psychologist to see why this is the obvious result that you would expect however what happened is that about five percent of the students got a result which is was inconsistent with anything you would ever expect from learning theory, which is that the um, two homework assignments online, both the pre-class question and the um, review question, students were doing much better than the three questions that they got in class, basically in class on the first exam and on the um, final exam. In fact, the really bizarre thing, the way I identified these 5% of students, I singled out the 5% of the students who the very first time they were asked that question, okay, which was um, a pre-class question on at home when they were supposed to do the reading and answer the question. That was the time they answered the question the best. So like 90% correct the first time they saw that question. But after getting the second and third and fourth version of that question, they came to the final exam, which is now the fifth time they're getting being asked the same thing. Their performance had declined to eighty percent. Okay, and that's amazing. How can you tell someone the answer four times in a row and they're going to do worse? Okay, right. This is a very striking result, which made me look to track it down. And. The answer is that um, Google has given students an extremely powerful tool for doing really well on their homework. You get a question, and some students are amazingly skilled at, at looking things up. Google much better than I do. You use it as a query, searches the world, it gives you an answer, and you write it in, and you get it right. So suddenly, my students were doing tremendous on their homework assignments, and they were feeling good about it. However, there is now a well-documented effect of Google M, which goes back to where I talked about at the beginning, which is that when you substitute, learning, does, learning doesn't come from perceiving, it comes from acting. Which is generating effect is you generate something for yourself. So when people spend their lives looking things up, or or just recording things, what happens is that they um, they're gradually emptying out their memory of any information. So that people who take who use their cell phones to take pictures when they're in a museum remember much less the museum than people who don't take pictures. People, EPSs have greatly reduced people's knowledge of where they are or how to get to locations. Just across the board, if you're going to look things up, you don't remember them because it's eliminated the generation step. So what was happening was that students were now doing really well in their homeworks, which made them believe that they were going to do really well in the exams, but actually it was guaranteeing that they were going to do 
poorly on the exams. They were going to do more poorly on the exams than students who, who were so lazy. Not only did they not read the assignment, but they just guessed at the answer. Because it turns out even guessing, since that's generating, turns out to create a memory trace for the question, which in the end, the better memory for the whole thing. So I, I thought this was a pretty... Um, a compelling thing and also concerning to me because this is something that's completely insidious. No one who was doing it would have any intuition that this is what they were doing. And the other thing that was very appalling is over the next 11 years, the percentage of students who were doing this had gone from 5% to 45%. Mm. And I have no doubt that in the next 10 years, it will go to virtually 100%. And you'll have students working online who will think they're not all that smart when in fact the problem is that they're doing something which is insidious like preventing them from retaining the material. They're perfectly capable of retaining. So I felt an ethical obligation now that I've stumbled upon this and get out to the world as much as I can. This very important finding so students could be informed students and understand the really disastrous consequences of relying on um, search engines for completing homework assignments. It's, it's exactly counterproductive for what they want to really accomplish, which is doing well on the exam. And if you look at all the data in the second paper, you see clearly it's having the exact opposite effect. They're doing more poorly on the exam. Um, there's this huge gap between how well they do on their homework assignments when they use search engines, and then when they're asked the question in class, well, they don't have the search engine and they just don't know the answer at all. And again, this is an insidious effect because if you ask them five minutes or maybe even up to a day later for the thing they looked up, they still know the answer. But it doesn't create long-term retention. So they're definitely not going to remember the week later, which means it's not going to happen on the exam. So that's where I am in the research at the moment. And... Um, I thank you for helping me to spread the word to your students and to students everywhere about this. Absolutely, absolutely. I, and I appreciate uh, Professor Glass, you know, providing that, that sort of comprehensive introduction to your research, establishing the context and, and sort of tracing, if you will, uh, sort of concomitant with your research is, is, is sort of the evolution, if you will, of technology integration in the classroom. Um, and, and you answered one of the questions I, I was going to ask in terms of what, what do you see as our trajectory uh, in the future uh, relative to um, you know, students relying on, on technology, on Google uh, for their homework. And you, you've already mentioned a little bit about what you, uh, what you would somewhat uh, predict, if you will. Uh, what about the, the, the current pandemic and the impact it has had? On, on more and more students, whether it's K-12 students or in higher education, you know, uh, in, in, in that becoming, in the online becoming that teaching and learning environment, do you think that that, that will, will either um, expedite that trajectory that you're talking about um, or perhaps create a, a broader context within which teaching and learning goes on, maybe a little bit more sophisticated pedagogy um, uh, in terms of the instructional delivery, or will it have no impact whatsoever? I can't hear you. Where's Um. Well, I, I 
I think it's inevitable that the worldwide now experience with online instruction is going is going to unfortunately have extremely negative effects in accelerating this trajectory. It's going to accelerate the trajectory because it's um, much less expensive to give instruction online rather than to do it in person. Um, the extremely negative effects of online instruction are, are completely insidious. They're not obvious to anyone except for me and people who hear this podcast. And therefore, people will go ahead and say, okay, well, we can get the same results much less, ex much less expensively by just you know, encouraging online broadcasting. And they will therefore damage the academic prospects of about 90% of their student body. Not everyone, but a large percentage of their student body. Because, again, the thing is, people rely, which is not a bad thing to do in psychology, on their own intuitions first to guide various kinds of decisions that seems to make sense to them for what worked for them. And there's another factor which, which enters into this. And you, ask, you can ask the question, okay, you, first thing that's it's just a pattern is that on whole kinds of dimensions, humans are way smarter than other creatures. We just are, we're off the scale. Okay? So you, you ask, okay, well, why are humans so smart? Okay, what great advantage did it give them? Right? And it turns out, I think the most convincing answer was, was actually, um, supplied by uh, an anthropologist by the name of Robin Dunbar, who says that humans are so smart because they're the most social creatures in the world. And it's very clear that if you look at social creatures versus non-social creatures, social organization gives creatures an enormous advantage in surviving in the world. So when humans became the most social creatures, they, for the first time, they were able to dominate their environment and greatly reduce the likelihood of a human ever dying of hunger, thirst, or being killed by another animal. And after that, this huge positive feedback loop developed, whereby humans became smarter to become more social. And as they became more social, that, well, what happened was that there was a shift. And it was no longer how far you rose in the world depended on how strong you were, but how social you were, unless social people raised it. And therefore, what happened was that humans as a group became more and more social, which meant they both dominated the world more and more, but also their individuals who were highly social rose up higher and higher. But you can't become more social unless you become smarter. And so people became smarter so they could be more social and then all the advantages come from being more social. Now there's a consequence of all this. If you look at very fundamental level at human learning abilities, you discover that if you strip away all academics, you discover that human learning abilities really are designed to help us perform social functions better. They're really not there designed to help us 
We, we, I mean, plenty of other animals can do that. If that's what you wanted to do, it would just turn you into a tiger or something. It wouldn't give you the kind of abilities we have. We're really, all our cognitive abilities are designed to make us better and better at social activities. And something that goes along with that, what are the environments and activities in which people learn the most? And wow, lo and behold, they're all social activities. You have people learn things, you put them in a group, you give them tasks, and they remember that way better and they learn a lot more from social activities than anything else. Is that you see that that's how cognition devised, devising close, close contact with it. But the other thing about human beings is that there's this huge range. We're not all the same, okay? It's remarkable actually how different we are given how similar our genetics are. And so you have this tail end of human beings, uh, maybe 10% of the population, maybe 5%, whatever it is, it's a small percentage. There are the characters um, who are brilliantly represented on a TV show no longer with us called The Big Bang, and that's men and women who um, they just love learning so much that they can even do a great job not in a social situation. Just give them a book, and they'll master it. Give it math, they'll, like, they can master it. And now you master it, they love doing it. For them, it's just enormously reinforcing it. But that's not, it's clearly not the majority. That's clearly, and whatever the percentage of people who do that, right? Um, it's, it's less than 10%, but they clearly exist. And they are important in our world today. Um, and they, and what do those people do for a living? Well, uh, they disproportionately end up as college professors. And um, beyond that, those are good that they end up in teachers and such. And therefore, the people who design education systems and have a lot of um, um, control of them are often people for whom the absolute critical importance of, of, of social interaction to learning is just not true for them, though it's probably true for all the students in their class. Or they're not going to be at all attuned to the negative consequences of sucking out the social aspect even more of instruction right? when we go from face to face to online, and therefore there isn't going to be the resistance to it that there that there there really should be because instead what happens is what always happens in this situation the the, the few people will. Um, who, who do great online, okay, they will say, well, that's because I'm smart. And all the other people who aren't doing so well, they're, they're not as smart as me. When the correct answer is that I've designed a system of education which is good for me, but not good for 90% of the other people. And that's why I'm doing well. And that's why, why they don't do well as me. And people will assent to this because, of course, wealthy people will now send their kids to private schools where they'll have face-to-face instruction. And therefore, all of their kids will do well. And the vast majority of public school kids will not be stuck with online instruction. And therefore, they'll say, well, you know, I'm really rich now because I'm lucky it's because I was born smart and therefore all my kids were born smart and that's why they're doing it all. They completely ignore the fact that their kids are getting a totally different kind of education, the kind that actually works for everyone and the vast everyone else is getting an education that, that only works for a few. So unless I get the message out, I really see um, a dystopian uh, future for next generation of students, which doesn't make me happy at all. Mm -hmm. Yes. It, 
again, uh, we appreciate you taking time out, Professor Glass. I, I see the time here. We uh, we need to wrap it up here. Uh, but uh, but again, uh, on behalf of the Future Insight Podcast and our listeners, I want to I want to thank you for uh, for sharing your research uh, and uh, and placing it within the, the current context as well in terms of the latter conversation that we just had. Uh, so again, thank you, Professor Glass, and, and thank you, listeners, for joining us for this episode of Future Insight. Thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm.